Are curses real? I would guess many of you would say no, while others might say yes. Some would say, yes, curses are real. I I've heard too many stories to deny it. They're voodoo or witch doctors, the Hope Diamond, King Tut, the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> or you might even have cl claimed to have experienced a curse before. One of our elders and I sat in my office with a young woman not too long ago who was convinced that she and her family had been cursed after visiting a, a psychic and they left and their whole life just seemed to go to shambles. And so she was convinced that they were cursed. If you search Google, a plethora of articles will pop up talking about curses, how to tell if you have been cursed, and how to break the curse that you might be in. At the same time, other people would say, it's crazy to believe that curses are real. And they're way too superstitious for our liking. Too fantastical, too far-fetched. In our Western world, in our naturalistic culture, the idea of curses is foreign to us. Or they're just fiction. Right? We have relegated the curses to the worlds of fantasy, to the worlds of Harry Potter, or Snow White, or Indiana Jones, or Jack Sparrow, but not our worlds. But I would like to propose to you this morning that curses are real, but not necessarily like we imagine. I'm not going to debate whether or not our culture's idea of curses are real, but I do want to contend that the Bible's idea of a curse is very real, as in the opposite of blessing, as in God's opposition or withdrawing of his favor. The late theologian R.C. Sproul says, the very word curse in our culture suggests some kind of superstition. But in biblical categories, there's nothing superstitious about it. And the idea of the curse is deeply rooted in biblical history. And really, ever since the beginning of the world, when mankind fell into sin and God pronounced anathema on the serpent and on childbearing and on the very ground under our feet, this world has been under a curse. And not just cursed by a diamond or a witch doctor, but cursed by God. I want you to consider today, very seriously, what if you are cursed right now? Because if you are under God's curse, you need to know how that curse can be broken. Otherwise, you'll never receive God's blessings or God's grace. So with that sobering stage set, let's turn to Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. For the last 15 chapters in Deuteronomy, Moses has been preaching the law. But back in chapter 11, right before he did this, he made things very plain to the Israelites, saying this. He said, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. 
the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today. Moses then introduced a blessing and curse ceremony to do once they entered the land. Today's passage, chapter 27, will act like a bookend to that one, with much of the same themes, but goes into greater detail. Before we get into the curse section, however, we, we start much more positively. Our chapter last week, 26, ended with a phenomenal promise of blessing. And it said this, if you see it there in verse 18 of chapter 26, And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor, high above all nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. This is beautiful stuff. And it's at this point, Moses brings some other people up front with him. Verse 1, it says, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people. He does this later again with the priests. But they bring this message to Israel. And what was their message? It was all about what's really been a theme of this book. Maybe the theme. Keeping or obeying God's commands as given in the law. Okay, look, verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Now we rightly wonder, how could anyone actually keep the whole law? Great question. We're going to come back to it. But this is not the point of this passage. The point of what we'll see today is more simply the need to obey God's commands, as well as the, the enactment, the establishment of things that would help them do so. Here's the first thing that's going to help them. In verse 2, Keep the whole commandment I command you today, and on the day that you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them, all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones, concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. Get what they're supposed to do here? Right? As soon as they enter the promised land, they were to find these two huge stones, and then they were to stand these boulders up cover them with plaster, in other words, paint them white, essentially. And then they had to write or etch out the law onto these stones, like a monument. Why? Because monuments help us remember things that are most important. And what could ever be more important to remember than what God had spoken to them. Here's the point. Keeping God's commands bears remembering. To keep God's commands, we must ensure that we remember them. They, they bear remembering. And notice here the, the close relationship between law 
and grace, between command and promise. Okay? Obedience to the law was to take place in the land that God was giving them. It says that twice. Is the land that I'm giving you. It doesn't say, do all this in the land that the Lord your God is rewarding you with. Know that the promised land was not a reward for good behavior. It was a gift of grace. And because of that grace, they were to obey. Also, like we saw last week, the, within the same breath, God commands and God promises. The land was really a fulfillment of God's promise. As it said in verse 3, when you enter the land that the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Listen, if we were to try to obey God's commands without trusting in his promises, I guarantee every single one of us would quit with discouragement and failure. But God keeps his promises. And he promises grace to us both before and after our obedience. The stones would be a monument. But really they would be set up on another pre-existing monument. One scholar, Chris Wright, explains, he says, The land itself will be an even greater monument to God's grace than the stones erected upon it. The stones will bear witness to God's covenant law. The land they stand on will bear witness to God's covenant faithfulness. Even in physical symbolism, the law is grounded in grace. As a physical symbol, these stones would help people visualize the centrality of the law for their culture. Think of museums. You've likely visited in Ottawa, maybe elsewhere. George Athos says that monuments, museums, and galleries are important for preserving and showcasing a people's identity, culture, and values. This is why they often host significant cultural events, like commemorations, and feature on the itineraries of tourists who wish to understand the people and places they're visiting. Literacy was very low at this point in antiquity, so the monument was not so much for the public to read as it was a visual reminder that Yahweh's law was the basis of Israelite culture. Now, the Old Testament is full of stories where people set up monuments like these, which leads us to ask, should we be setting up physical monuments as Christians? Well, the New Testament doesn't lay out any instructions for doing so. It's not a requirement. But it also doesn't say it's a bad thing to do. And I'd assume that it could be helpful at times. As long as we're not, you know, setting up graven images or making things idolatrous as we go along. But if you think about it, we do tend to decorate with things like crosses or Bibles. Right? And inasmuch as things like these help us remember their centrality, great. You may want to consider like, how you might decorate your home in strategic ways. And use your, your artistic abilities, your creativity. Make things memorable. What has God done for you? 
saturate your daily life with that. Reminders, with images, symbols, verses to help you remember. Another monument, you might say, for Christians would be the Lord's Supper. Where we intentionally remember the new covenant that God has enacted through Christ. But let's think a little bit more specifically about remembering God's commands. All right? How do we intentionally remember what God has told us to do? By consistently sitting under biblical preaching? It's good. By digging deeper into God's Word in small groups or Bible studies or with friends? It's great. Maybe by daily digesting the Word on your own or as families? Wonderful. My wife right now has a whole bunch of 3 by 5 cards plastered all over our kitchen <laughs> with verses on them that she wants to remember and meditate on. It's not too pretty, but it's very beneficial. <laughs> Can we remember by memorizing key passages? Not many of us do that necessarily, but those that do find it tremendously helpful. There's all kinds of tools for that too these days too from music to apps to help you help. But if you are continually growing to know, to learn, to obey God's word more, keep it up. And if you're not, what would help you remember better or remember more? Keeping God's commands bears remembering. That was just the beginning. After setting up these stones, the Israelites were to do something else very important. They were to bathe the whole event in worship. Joyful worship at that. See, when we remember, God, or we remember and obey God's commands, this shouldn't ever lead to a, a boring or burdensome existence. No, keeping God's commands births rejoicing. Keeping God's commands, should, it should lead to, it should birth rejoicing. See this together in verse 5. It says, And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You will wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. We may wonder about some of the unusual details there. Like why use no iron tools or why use uncut stones? The best explanation, I think, is that they were to use these raw materials that were unrefined by human hands in order to symbolically sanctify Canaan as a place for the pure worship of God. Now, this was not something man-made. This was from God. But, but the whole altar and the, the celebration around it was yet another way to, to celebrate what God had done in physical, tangible ways. They could see it. They could touch it. They could taste it. He had made them his people. He'd saved them. He'd revealed his great law to them. And so they would rejoice before 
the Lord. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, to feast there with great joy. In a world that is extremely hedonistic, that is obsessed with happiness and pleasure, we can tend to see God's word as pitted against these things, right? As if obeying God and following his ways is hard and joyless, at least compared to everyone else. After all, I mean, obedience does restrain our freedoms, doesn't it? It doesn't let us eat or drink whatever we want or say whatever we want, or go wherever we want, or watch whatever we want, or sleep with whomever we want. But what we have a hard time realizing is that keeping God's commands is the only path to true and lasting joy. It's the only path to joy. And, and, and that we don't realize that most of what we think brings pleasure only ends in pain. God is not a party pooper. He even writes parties into his law. Celebrations. Following him can bring joy even now. I mean, think of, history is going to end with a celebration to end all celebrations. It's God's doing. His commands are not restrictive. They're not crushing. They're liberating. You might say, hashtag winning. <laughs> and there, there's victory in them. First John 3 to 4 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. It's how we love him. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. As part of Israel's worship, they were to offer two kinds of sacrifices here. It says in, in verse 6 that they were to offer burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord. Burnt offerings were generally seen as the most vertically oriented sacrifice that Israel had, most focused on God. And in peace offerings, also known as fellowship offerings, the meat of the sacrifice was largely shared among the worshipers. So it was a very horizontally oriented sacrifice. Love of God and love of neighbor were super evident, even in their worship. And even the, the sacrifices themselves were symbolic. The altar was seen as God's dining table, essentially where God would receive and consume the burnt offering. And then around his table, his people would gather and consume the peace offering. This was to be a, a beautiful ceremony, painting a, a beautiful picture of the, the peace that they had between God and with one another. But I find it remarkable this event was centered around the fact that God gave them his law. Even right in the middle of the ceremony, they were to focus on it. Look at verse 8. 
So while they're celebrating, while they're sacrificing, rejoicing, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Other translations say very clearly or very distinctly. Make it clear. Part of their celebration was to include carving God's word into stone, which means this point is true in reverse as well. Rejoicing should also birth obeying. But rejoicing in God isn't the only thing that should lead to obeying God's commands. There's something else more fundamental about us that should affect the way we live. Put it this way. We shouldn't just obey because of what it will do for us. We should obey because of who we are. Or rather, whose we are. See, keeping God's commands is birthed from relationship. Keeping God's commands is birthed from our relationship to God. I see this in verse 9 and 10. It says this, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. So Moses and the priests are like, Attention, everyone! Shut up! Listen up! Okay? Keep silence and hear, O Israel. There's a time to party, time to be quiet. And this statement makes what comes next very significant, solemn even. Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around just how incredible this was. Remember the wedding vows we talked about last week? How Israel declared that God would be their God and God declared that Israel would be his treasured possession. This verse is like the, the minister making the pronouncement of marriage. All right, I now pronounce you to be husband and wife. It's like I pronounce you to be God and his people. So, Israel, you're not just some ancient Near Eastern people group anymore. You're not just Abraham's descendants. You're not just ex-slaves or nomads anymore. You are now the people of Yahweh. You're, you're his. You belong to him. Now, it's not like they weren't his people before, but now they're covenanted on both sides. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is true of you as well. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So your core identity is not in your nationality, or in your family background anymore. You're not your skin color, or your native language, or your age, or your marital status, 
or your occupation. I mean, sure, those things do partially define you, but they don't define you. You are God's. You belong to Him. And think about it. He has bought you with His blood. Which further means that you represent God and His kingdom on earth. Therefore, we are to live our lives as His people. We're to, we're to really just be who we are. Look at verse 10. It says, You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. So representing God as His people meant obeying God. Living out. It's like we're to live in that relationship and then live out that identity in the world. So what does that look like? Here's just a few quick ideas. I was not exhausted. It could be a super long list of what it could look like to represent God. But it means guarding your tongue to not use your Lord's name in vain. Even though all your friends and coworkers constantly fill their mouths with blasphemy. It means showing respect and honor for your parents, even when you disagree. It means sticking it out in a marriage that the world would have abandoned a long time ago. Or fighting for sexual purity outside the marriage bed. It means being content and generous with what you have. Not envying others. Not, not needing to, to chase down promotions or raises or bonuses at all costs. Like so many do around us. These kinds of behaviors will stand out in our world. It's very different than most would act because we're not the world's people anymore. We're God's. Do you get how radical this truth is? We don't become God's people because of how we act. But the fact that we are God's people now should radically affect how we live. God's Commands ought to be kept by God's people. We have mercifully become his people, and so we're to represent him. Now let me ask you, does any of this sound unreasonable? Any of it unfair? No. It's very important that we see this because God always has our best in mind as his people. And this is why he wants us to, to remember the things that are most important. And he wants us to rejoice in his abundant goodness. And he wants us to, to live out our relationship with him. And this is not oppressive This is not repressive. God has been so gracious every step of the way. Which is why to turn away from him should be unthinkable. 
yet it's not. Which is why Moses then gives a very stern charge, a warning to his people. The gist of it is this, that not keeping God's commands leads to God's cursing. Not keeping God's commands tragically leads to God's cursing. We've seen that once Israel entered Canaan, they were to make a pit stop. They were to, to gather in this valley between two mountains, Mount Ebal on one side, Mount Gerizim on the other. And then half the people were to climb the slope of one mountain and half up the other for a ceremony. It, it describes it a bit here. In verse 11, it says, That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan... These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, these are tribes, not people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And we don't know why which tribes were chosen to represent which side. But one side would represent God's blessing, symbolize that. The other would represent God's cursing. And this would have been a, a vividly memorable object lesson. Right? Two paths, two future possibilities, two choices were laid out before Israel. On the one hand, God's continued blessing and flourishing. And on the other, God's opposition and the removal of his hand of blessing. Joshua chapter 8 describes when Joshua led Israel to carry out this ceremony. And at that time, the entire law was read out for all the people to hear. But picture being there. Picture, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, gathered on and standing on two mountains opposite of each other. Solemn eerily silent until the Levites, the priests, would shout out something for all to hear. Following which, everyone there was to respond with a hearty Amen! Whenever they said that, just imagine that many people saying that. It must have been deafening. It must have shaken the ground. And then it would go back to silence. The priest would shout out something else. Amen! How would you feel being part of that thunderous chorus of people? It would have been powerful, right? If you don't know, amen is a simple little Hebrew word that means that you agree. It's like giving an emphatic yes, or let it be so. You all know the, the call and response saying, and all God's people say, amen. Right? That saying actually comes from this chapter in Deuteronomy. But here's the interesting thing. What people were amening is not what you might expect. 
We usually say amen after something that we really like to hear or after a, a solid prayer. Says, God, please bless us. Amen. Or God works all things out together for the good of those who love him. Amen. But the Israelites were to say amen in response to curses being proclaimed. George Athos explains that by performing this ceremony, Israel would effectively go live with the covenant within the promised land and bind itself to the consequences of the basic covenantal dynamic. In other words, they acknowledged that they would get what they deserved. I'm going to read the rest of this chapter in a sec, which describes what they were all to say. It's basically like a, a mini recap of the law. There are 12 laws listed perhaps for the 12 tribes standing there. But it's not like the Ten Commandments. It's not like a summary of the law. It's more like a, a sampling of various crimes that merited God's curse. It's a bit like when those of us who are parents pull our kids aside to give them some instructions. Like, I need you to go get in the car right now. You may repeat yourself, and you're trying to get confirmation that they, have, they were paying attention, that they understood, so that they'll know that there are consequences and they won't feel injustice if they fail to obey. God was like, listen, you all need to obey the law now. You need to obey me. Did you hear me? What's going to happen if you don't? Let's go through the list. Verse 14. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. And finally, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. And these may all seem fairly random to us. 
But one common thread is that most of these sins would be done in private or in secret. So Chris Wright explains that by their nature, these are ones that are not likely to come into open court for trial and judgment. The purpose of the curses, therefore, is to remind Israel that Yahweh sees and knows what happens in secret. The criminal who escapes the wrath of the civil community will not escape the wrath of God. The repeated demand that all the people shall say amen have the effect that all wrongdoers are obliged to pronounce their own curse. So, even if you broke the law in private, God still saw, God will still judge. And this is absolutely still true. right? God sees us, even when others don't. We can't hide. Going through this list really rapidly, just summarizing them, the, the first command in verse 15 has to do with idolatry. So it reflects the, the first and second commandments of being loyal to Yahweh alone. Second, Dishonoring or demeaning parents goes directly back to the fifth commandment, and this is something that would happen in the privacy of a home usually. Third, verse 17, talks about secretly adjusting property lines. So that plays into both stealing and coveting. Verse, uh, the next one outlaws cruelly misleading vulnerable people, such as blind men. And verse 19 also looks out for the vulnerable, saying that if you're going to pervert justice for them, taking advantage of their lowly place, you'll be cursed. The next four are all sexual in nature, forbidding different kinds of adultery and incest and bestiality, clearly hearkening back to the seventh commandment. And then verse 24 looks back to the sixth, talking about murders that take place secretly. Unsolved homicides are not unsolved to God. Innocent blood is still the concern in verse 25. It says, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. So God sees when innocent blood is shed. In our day, you may think of abortion. And finally, verse 26 gives a catch-all curse. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them and all the people shall say, Amen. In other words, if you obeyed, you confirmed or you upheld the law. But if you did not obey, if you did not do what the law said, you would be under God's curse. In case you thought you were okay after the first 11, good luck with that one. So the Israelites were to hear all of these curses, and they were to boom out a resounding amen, affirming that they were hearing God's commands and agreeing that they would live by them. Sadly, the rest of the Old Testament shows these curses being violated far more often than they were observed. For example, Judges 17 talks about a man named Micah making a secret idol that ended up leading an entire tribe into sin. David's son Absalom dishonored his father, clearly, then later slept with his father's concubines. Ahab unjustly seized Naboth's vineyard, just in your property lines. 
2 Kings 4, a widow complains to Elisha about a creditor exploiting her and her son. Amnon raped his sister Tamar. David had Uriah killed secretly. And the list goes on and on. And if we think that our culture is any better than theirs, Wright warns that only when God is properly honored will society be just and compassionate. Modern Western society, reaping the fruit of centuries of systematically excluding the living God from all practical public relevance, is now plagued by the loss of family stability, respect for property, social compassion, sexual integrity, and the sanctity of life. Those who will not love God soon find it irksome or uneconomical to love their neighbors. In our day, we tend to recoil against the idea of a just God of judgment who may even curse people. And I'm not saying that this should be a pleasant thought. But as God's people, are we willing to amen it? Let it be so. Because God knows we desperately deserve his curse. We have viciously turned our backs on our perfectly holy, loving, merciful creator. Can you admit that you have earned hell? Can you amen that? With tears in your eyes? What would it mean for an Israelite to be cursed by God? We're going to see this in graphic detail in chapter 28 next week. But as R.C. Sproul says for now, that as opposed to the Lord's blessing, as described in Numbers 6, 24 to 26, you know, the, the famous benediction, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. As opposed to that, to receive God's curse would be to hear this pronouncement. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness. Give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you. Remove his peace forever. Is that not horrifying? really describes hell.
And Israel had to muster up an amen to this. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. It's a stunning admission. But true. And the chapter ends like this. Look, the curse be anyone who breaks the law. Amen. Talk about a downer of an ending. Couple things to note before we end. Daniel Block points out that ultimately these curses' purpose was positive to motivate obedience. If God's goodness does not stimulate his people to faith and righteous conduct, perhaps warnings like this will. Even these warnings are grace, for they serve the pastoral purpose of keeping the people of God spiritually on track. So, recognize God's grace, even in the warnings. But more importantly, this chapter may end this way, but praise God the story doesn't end there. The truth is, no one could keep the whole commandment that Moses commanded of people here. It couldn't be done. Oh, remembering would help. And rejoicing was crucial to faithfulness. And knowing who God has made us to be does inspire us to obey. But on our own, we always fall short. History shows our pitiful track record. And so we are cursed. Not following God's commands leads to God's cursing. Yes and amen. But here's the glorious news. Us not following God's commands is what led to the cross. Jesus was the only man who confirmed the words of the law by doing every one of them. And yet he died taking our place under God's wrath to deal with the curse. I want you to to turn ahead in your Bibles as we end here really quickly to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. I've quoted this passage a couple times in our Deuteronomy series already. Probably do it again next week (laughs) because it is that crucial at showing how Jesus has radically changed things now. But verse 10 of Galatians 3 quotes directly from our final verse of Deuteronomy 27 today. That is more applicable than ever. And if you have never seen your desperate need for Jesus, I hope that that has been exposed today. Okay, that, and I hope that you will run to him in faith even now as we all must do. We all have to run to Christ. Please follow along with me. Galatians 3 verse 10. Let these words of hope and grace wash over you. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, don't miss this, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. (laughs) Never get over this. God's blessing now rests on us even as he dwells in us. Without Jesus, we are cursed. But with Jesus, we're blessed forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, would you open our eyes once again today, if you haven't already, to our sin, to our need for you, And then draw us to yourself. Draw us to the cross. Help us to fall on our knees in gratitude for what you have done for us. We are eternally changed for it. Eternally redeemed and eternally grateful. Work in our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.